need a job, but there's nothing. I, I'll, I'll help. I never helped. you away because I didn't know how to take care of you. Your father couldn't accept you. He felt he failed. Right. I hated you. Poor. Driving him away. of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get to our film of discussion this week, which is the 1986 film Children of a Lesser God. Uh, we have a recommend that we need to bring your way, and this one comes via our patron, Ryan Michael Zepp, uh, who in the past had recommended a movie that we both, I think, really uh, clung to uh, in Senna, which oh, as man, I was thinking, I, I loved Senna. Yeah, and as I was thinking about it this morning, I was like, man, that would have been a, that. We also probably could have replaced the Gleaners and I with Senna. That I mean, just to put it back in the book. That's not a bad idea. I don't know why we didn't think of that. Kind of yeah, drop drop the ball on that one. I know. Well, you know, it happens. It happens. Um, but uh, that is not the recommend that we're talking about this week. We are instead talking about, uh, well, a, a movie. It's a movie. Um, we we are talking about <laughs> Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Um, this is the, uh, the, the Werner Herzog 2009 film, um, as opposed to the 92 Abel Ferrara film. And we can get into, if we have a couple minutes, we'll, we can get into the differences as well. Cause I, you know, after I finished, uh, Port Call New Orleans, which I'd, I'd seen once before and I had enjoyed, uh, to a degree, um, I stuck on the Abel Ferrara version because it's just better in almost every way and uh, apologies to 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 ryan in advance that you know this i i was happy to revisit portocol new orleans but uh i i think you're gonna i think you have some very strong opinions on it if you want to go first well i let me just you know I, i'm here i'm looking at the imdb page right now as we're talking and just the, the little thing is uh, Nick Cage plays Terrence McDonough, a drug and gambling adult detective in post-Katrina New Orleans investigating the killing of five Senegalese immigrants. Uh, yeah, that is that is essentially kind of what's going on. Um, but man, this movie is is frantic and all over the place. And as a as an idea for a movie, I really do like when characters have so much shit going on in their lives and it's it's kind of watching them how are we going to do this right i think a lot of you know the end of goodfellas when ray liotta's character is trying to juggle all of these different fucking things and it's it's intense because part of you is wondering how the hell is he going to do that so so there, there's a lot of that going on there's everything going on between him and ava mendez there's everything going on between him and his dad 
there's everything going on with this this actual investigation plus a back injury that he's dealing with so he's like self-medicating out the wazoo there's this relationship that he has with Val Kilmer and sort of like these like this one this one upsmanship and then he gets in trouble so like then there's this whole thing where he's kind of teaming up with Exhibit who plays like this this big shot kind of like drug dealer guy in the area and like it's it's not that any of those things don't work I think ultimately though there's a there's a charisma that I don't I'm not getting from Nick Cage in this movie and it's I think it's just kind of crazy for crazy's sake I, I I don't know what how do you feel well no well he does he does go as as the as the phrase goes full cage pretty early in this movie with that shakedown scene, which I think is about 20 to 25 minutes in with the the young couple that have stumbled yeah. out of the club and he's shaking them down for whatever they've got on them and then ends up having an encounter with a young woman while he makes the guy watch. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to just... Because I, th I think it's slightly unfair to try and compare it to the, the Abel Ferrara film, but, I mean, they kind of didn't do themselves any favors when they took the same title, and it sounds like, by some accounts anyway, uh, and at least Herzog's, he said that, you know, the producers kind of stuck the title Bad Lieutenant onto the front of it as a sort of marketing thing. Like, it doesn't really have any connection with the Ferrara film other than, you know, share some similar themes of this this crooked cop doing bad things and, you know, to a degree kind of getting away with it, um, which I think the Herzog film kind of takes the easy way out and it has an explanation and a rationale for why he does the things that he does. And then, as I said, I mean, he does kind of get away with it at the end, unlike the Harvey Keitel character who does spoiler alert for a film that's heading on for 30 years old. Now he's, uh, he does get killed at the end. Um, thanks a lot. So I just, yeah, you're welcome. Um, you have seen the the Ferrara version, no, right? No, I haven't. Oh shit! I'm very sorry then. No, you're not. Um, no, you're not. Uh, well, well, you know the movie is 30 years old, and it's you know, I, I okay. I'm a little bit sorry. I'm not completely sorry, but <laughs> you should you shouldn't use that as an excuse not to see it because Keitel gives a breathtaking performance. I, I think it's I think it's the performance of his career and. Uh, Scorsese said it was one of the 10 best films of the 90s and Keitel being in it had nothing to do with that for him. He just he thought it was, you know, a great piece of cinema and it really is I think it's I think it's Ferrara's best film of the sort of four or five of his that I've seen. Sure. But anyway, you know, we're not, we're not supposed to be talking about that one. We're supposed to be talking about the New Orleans one and I, you know, I do appreciate what Nick Cage is doing in it, but I feel like it's it's Cage sort of unhinged, and I do think that, like Kinski and that relationship that, that Herzog and Kinski had, I think Herzog should have done a little more to try and, and rein him in and get a bit more of a controlled and nuanced performance. Well, I, A, I agree, and I figured that that whole California Klaus Kinski thing was going to come up, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. But did you notice? Did you notice that in the casino scene where he's looking for the kid, he even does the Kinski pivot into frame, like he does oh in Aguirre? That's so funny. I, I, now that you've mentioned it, yes, that that is very clear that he's doing that. Um, you know, I think what's what honestly stood stood out the most for me watching this movie was, you know, we talk about going full cage and. I think there are movies that it works in a in a real degree like Leaving Las Vegas or in a comical degree like Vampire's Kiss. The problem with this one is that it's bad it's it's legit just bad acting. Like it's at some point he he starts doing this thing with his voice like this his his speech pattern and his like the quality of his voice changes. And it's so weird because at the beginning of the movie he's just talking like a person. And then he kind of starts putting on this this affectation, and it's like, what are you? What? Where is this coming from? It's, well, it's like he's explained. got permanently clenched teeth. Yeah, but it. And and I I I kind of thought that either his choice or maybe that you would bring up the idea that he's like he's been up for days and he's doing coke and stuff. And yeah, sure, but like there's not enough there's not enough alluded to that and and. It just sounds like a, it just, 
it's just I, I just think it's a bad choice. I just think it's a it's a choice that should have been either expressed more or or just straight up taken out. But I I I, I just thought this was not a, not a good not a good it's not it's not that it's not a good performance. It's not a good Nicolas Cage performance because at this point he is so sequestered himself to a particular form of acting that you have you can't just compare him to other actors. You have to compare him to the other roles he's played before in the past. And 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 for me, this is pretty low on that list. Yeah, I I would agree, but I I think the the film itself is better than his performance in it. You know what I mean? And I I, I like some of the I do like some of the the crazier choices. Not all of them, but some of the crazier choices that Herzog made. I love the, uh, I love the iguana scene, where he comes in and they're they're doing their uh, um, surveillance thing, and he comes in and he sees the iguanas on the table, and he says, "Hey, what the what the fuck are those lizards doing on my my coffee table?" And Valcomer goes, "What what are you talking about? There's no there's no lizards there." And he flicks. Well, you actually see him flick one, yeah, and says, "And what the fuck is that?" I I do I do really like that moment because it's just. They pepper in these moments of surrealism, which I think does a good job of getting us into his headspace, even though his performance may not necessarily match that surrealism. So I'm I, I, I like them, but I'm I'm in two minds about some of them because it's it you know, there's a there's a weird juxtaposition that doesn't always flow. If I I don't know if I'm if I'm getting my point across there or not i'm kind of stumbling over my words a little bit but i i do you know what i mean yeah i i, I do i just i found that scene and the ending of the movie when they're at the uh, whatever aquarium they're at to be kind of masturbatory i just thought oh, okay i don't i i don't care it yeah, seemed the the extended iguana close-ups that does go on a little long yeah that, and and i don't like i don't mind that there's like like the lizards in the room the iguana like that's that's sure that's fine but uh, you know what what that ha- yeah those extended extended close-ups of the lizards what that means uh, you know and and just the the end of the movie sitting in front of the fish i i and then you know it's i i wish there would have been more and maybe maybe it goes back to the the original version like you were saying with um uh, with Keitel getting getting um, his comeuppance in the end, I don't know if I I don't know if I like him kind of getting away with it in the end. Um, and that's and that's I'm not really trying to make a judgment about the character or the or the plot really. That that's something that I'm still like I you know. I get that people can change. I don't think that at the end of the day. Ooh, and this might be a good segue into wanting to talk about uh, Children of a Lesser God. At the end of the day, I don't think that Nick Cage has the in the movie as as mcdonough i don't think that he has the capacity to change that is that is a great segue i like that a lot but before we do get into children of lesser god i do just want to end on something positive about portocol new orleans and that's the supporting cast yeah uh i i love jennifer coolidge in it i don't think she has done anything else like that i i love her crazy sort of uh uh that's the word I'm looking for. She's she's uh, she's got this. There's just this thing about the her her judgment. You know what I mean? She's she's willing to you know call everybody out for their their drug abuse. She you know she's a bit of a hypocrite, but you know she's she's an alcoholic herself. And I I love the moment where she comes into the room and she sees Nick Cage doing blow, and she's like, "You don't have to hide it from me." Um. That, I think that's a really great beat, and I love Brad Dorif as his um, as his bookie. I think he's really great, and then I love the little uh, cameos from Shea Wiggum and Michael Shannon. You know, Michael Shannon especially is the guy that's in the property room, like just like doesn't want anything to do with this anymore. You know, especially when Nick Cage gets assigned there, and he's like trying to work his way around, like how can I hide from the cameras? And Michael Shannon is just totally fucking over it. Yeah, I that that is true, and I I can I can and absolutely agree with. I I think everybody else in the movie is is doing really good work. I mean, to be honest, I even you know he's not really an actor, but I think I think even Exhibit is doing really well as that as that role. He's not. Oh yeah, he owns it, man. Yeah, it it, it could have easily been like caricature, and I didn't get that. I got I got this is a fully fleshed out person. 
And even though she's only got two scenes, I'm not a massive fan of her work, but uh, I, I can always mispronounce her first name. Feroza. Oh, Feroza. Feroza Bulk. Yeah, Feroza Bulk. She's, she's really good in this, in the couple of scenes that she has. Indeed. I mean, she, Indeed. She's got a hell of a lot of work in those two scenes to sort of combat Nick Cage, but it's, it's good work. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So anyway, thank you for the recommend. I'm I'm sorry we probably didn't plug it in the way that you wanted us to, but I was, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that I was unhappy to revisit it. It's certainly an interesting movie, and I can, uh, I, and you know, and part of me even what what kept me in it was the whole like the actual investigation. Like, uh, I I think the story is an interesting one that kind of goes off the rails. I I think it's almost like kind of shoehorning in the, the Sengalese people who died, which is unfortunate because I think there's actually a really interesting story in there that just doesn't, that it, it, whether it's just because that's not the story they wanted to tell or not enough time, it doesn't get enough of the focus. But I think it's, yeah, it's just, it's, I think, I think a lot of indi- individual parts were good that just did, for me didn't lead to a, a whole good movie. No, I got you. And and one good thing that did come out of it is I it also prompted me to revisit the Ferrara film. So, you know, there you go. You take the good with the bad. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so let's let's get into today's episode. Um, Ian and I had a conversation off mic a while ago about how we hadn't really tackled an, enough women directors, and there really, unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot in the book. And so we made it a a, a very uh, conscious decision to do. Last week we did Agnes Varda. Um, and the Gleaners and I. And this week, we are doing uh, a Rhonda Haynes film, and that is Children of a Lesser God. Um, it came out in 1986. Um, it was written by Hesper Anderson and Mark Meadoff, based on Meadoff's play, um, which I actually was familiar with before this, and had I've read it, I've never seen it. Um, but so this, the movie itself actually wasn't very familiar to me, but the... Um, the story was the story of this was something I was very aware of. Well, and it was uh, it was just revived, uh, I think, last year uh, with Joshua Jackson, and then I have, ooh, I have her name here. So apparently, she did really well. She got nominated for a Tony. Uh, Lauren Ridloff, uh, who some people may know from The Walking Dead. So, oh, excuse me, sorry, it wasn't last year. It was 2018. It got a revival with, with Joshua Jackson and, and Lauren Ridloff. Um, as I said, it received uh, a Tony nomination and then a couple of nominations uh, in the West End as well when it originally came there in 1981. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, so let's... So, well, well, yes, it was a play... Uh, fairly successful in, in its day, and so not not too surprisingly that it made its way uh, onto the screen. Um, our cast, uh, William Hurt plays James Leeds, Marley Matlin as Sarah Norman, uh, Piper Laurie plays uh, Sarah's mom, uh, Philip Bosco is Dr. Curtis Franklin, the principal, I believe, of the school at which they are all at. Um and then, I mean, that's that's really it. I also, I, 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 the only other one I wanted to give a little shout out to was Allison Gompf, who plays Lydia. She's one of the deaf students. She's probably the most vibrant of of his students, and I think she's the most captivating to watch in in the class and 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 the other scenes that she's in. Um, anybody else that you wanted to give it a little shout out to? No, that was it. I'm glad you called out Lydia though, because I think she's. Uh, I think the actress that plays her. Uh, sorry, what was her name again? Uh, Allison Gompf. Yeah, I think she was really really good in it yeah um and, so, and and just in general just straight off the bat not enough time with the kids yeah i i, I agree but man i really yeah i i really have some some thoughts about <laughs> about this movie um so uh accolades uh got a, a fair amount of accolades um at the Academy Awards that year, it was up for Best Picture. It lost to Platoon. Um, William Hurt was up for Best Actor. He lost to Paul Newman for The Color of Money. Marley Matlin won Best Actress that year. Uh, Piper Laurie was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She lost to um, Diane Wiest for Hannah and Her Sisters. And it was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, which uh, that lost to A Room with a View, the uh, Merchant Ivory film. 
before we move on from the Oscars, there's a couple of a couple of really big firsts here. We've got the first female-helmed film to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Um, unfortunately, that that wouldn't come to fruition until uh, the end of the 2000, or was it 2010 when Hurt Locker won? Uh, it was 2009. 2009, yeah, there you go. Um, and then uh, Marley Matlin is still the only deaf actor or actress to win an Academy Award. She's also in a short list of uh, only five other women who have won uh, for their first performance. Indeed, indeed. Um, at the Golden Globes that year, it was up for Best Picture and Actor, and again, Marley Matlin won Best Actress. Um, it picked up DGA and WGA noms. Um, I, I don't know why I wrote this down. I didn't write down each one, but it apparently it cleaned up pretty well at the Berlin International Film Festival. Um, yeah, and it, it was, got second place there and the jury prize. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that's, well, it did pretty well there. Um, and then the only other one that I wanted to point out was that it did make the National Board Review's top 10 films of the year. Anything else that you wanted to... Well, seeing as though we love lists on this show. I love uh, lists. Did you... Yeah, there you go. I, I uh, love I do. I do have the top 10 from oh, that great. year yeah. if you're interested yeah. so at number 10 we have the mission uh peggy sue got married round midnight uh children of a lesser god is number seven the color of money at number six stand by me the fly my beautiful laundrette the which fly. i absolutely i yeah the fly made the top 10 of the year wow that's pretty that's, that's pretty impressive I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with that the fly is one of those movies that's really growing on me um, My Beautiful Laundrette, which I absolutely love, is number three. Hannah and Her Sisters, which I haven't... Have you seen Hannah and Her Sisters? It's one of the few Woody Allen... For me, I mean, I, to a degree, enjoy Woody Allen films, but uh, the 80s, I don't think I've really touched on anything that he did in I, that decade. He, you know, as divisive as he is as a, as a talking point and as somebody in the film industry, um, he still is pretty prolific, and, and man... I, no, I haven't. I, there's a whole lot of Woody Allen films I just haven't seen. I know that is that is quite the deep dive you could do on him. Yeah, for a multitude of reasons. And then a room with a view came in at number one on the National Board of Reviews uh, top ten. And then That's... you know right away before we move on from accolades, should we? Do we think that that Haynes was snubbed for best director? Is there anybody well, that you would pull out and replace with her? Um, I, I'm gonna. Here's the thing. I don't know all of the nominees, but but even even having having said that, my answer is no. Oh, would you would you like to hear the nominees? Sure. So obviously Oliver Stone won for Platoon. Indeed. Uh, then we have uh, David Lynch with Blue Velvet. Yeah. Yep. James Ivory, Room with a View. Roland Joffe with The Mission, and then of course Woody Allen for Hannah and Her Sisters. Uh, no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't replace. I mean, I haven't seen a couple of those, but. Even like seeing clips and, and like the mission is great. I, I think the mission is actually a really gorgeously shot film. And, and I, uh, I do love that movie a lot. Yeah. Um, no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, as much as it, 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 diversity is great and, and should be sought out. I, I just don't. I'm playing my cards here a little bit, but I don't I don't think this film was directed very well. All right. I, um, I'm not going to disagree. Uh, did you find any reviews? Anything that you well, wanted I, to? Well, I pulled I pulled Roger Ebert's, but the the thing that interested me a little more was as soon as I was done with the movie, I jumped on YouTube because I'm looking for any kind of like clips of of interviews or uh, you know any kind of like making of information, which I didn't I didn't really find a ton, but yeah, uh, I did find uh, when Siskel and Ebert were both alive and doing their TV show, I did find a clip a little three-minute clip from their TV show where they talked about it, and it seemed like Siskel really loved this film, and he talked about it hearkening back to, you know, the old 1940s and 50s Hollywood love stories and and very much having a flavor of that. And I don't think Ebert was... He wasn't quick to disagree, but the one thing that he did get hung up on and something that I think we're probably going to discuss at length in this episode and something that I, I found myself... 100% agreeing with is that the film and he used this this is the word he used he said the film cheats because the film is all about communication but we never get her side you know we're the the film doesn't really other than the and and Siskel counted with the swimming pool scenes but we don't really ever get 
a look inside her world you know in a in a film that is all about being being deaf and the the struggles and uh, psychological impacts of being deaf there's sound throughout the film we're never really allowed into their world there are no extended sequences of of what it must be like to be deaf deaf with silence well and that's that is certainly something that we will talk about at length. Uh, one of my issues with the movie is 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 so much more than that, and I'll I'll, I'll save that for a second. Um, one thing that I I wanted to uh, so I I took I found Paul Atancio's uh, Washington Post review, um, and it's something it kind of goes back to that hearkening of of sort of the films films gone by, and he says the trick of telling a love story is deceptively simple. You find a core of romantic energy so strong that nothing, not the events of the story or the circumstances of the characters, intrudes, and that's what Children of a Lesser God does. This is a romance the way Hollywood used to make it, with both conflict and tenderness. At times, capturing the texture of the day to day. At times, finding the lyrical moments when two lovers find that time stops. Um, let me just okay, quickly say that this has a Rotten Tomato score of 81 with an, uh, an audience score of 79. Um, I, I, first of I'm, all, I don't buy, I do not buy the romance of this movie it, at all. It does seem to come a little easy. Um, I, I definitely don't think like, I don't think they put in enough work in, yeah. into that and and the sort of believability of it it does seem to happen rather quickly and it, it seems like it's a foregone conclusion as early as the first time he sees her uh throwing a fit with the cook yeah um so really quickly uh because we're kind of dancing around a little bit so here's here's the the, the five cent synopsis of the movie um William Hurt plays James Leeds. He is, uh, he's not deaf, but he plays uh, a teacher who's just going, he's starting at a new school for the deaf. And uh, while there, he meets Marley Matlin, who plays Sarah, who uh, we hear used to be one of the brightest students at the school and uh, has, but is sort of turned a bit more antagonistic towards uh, others. Um, he becomes committed to trying to get her to speak and in the process of that falls in love with her. And the movie sort of follows them through the highs and lows of their, their short relationship. Um, <laughs> fucking ultimately though, uh, because the romance is just so pure between them, they get together at the end and live happily ever after. That, yeah, that's that's about it, man. Um, so can I? I I I, I want to jump right in, and and I, I I'm gonna sound like like I have a real strong connection to this movie, and I I I don't, and I'm gonna put that out there right off the bat. But what I do want to say is this. I took two years of ASL at, in high school, um, and in the process of doing that, learned a little bit, not a lot, not as much as I wish I would have, but a little bit about deaf culture. And um, I, I, am, I, I 100% disagree with the mindset uh, that this movie presents, which is that the job of deaf schools is to get deaf students to talk. Um, which is obviously it comes up in, in, in the, the James Sarah relationship. And that's sort of the biggest thing between them is he wants her to speak and she doesn't. Um, the fact that this school's MO is to get deaf kids to speak it's so horrendous and baffling. And the fact that James comes across as a hero in the doing of this is the worst take in a movie I have seen in a really long time. And it, 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 every time he, he was trying to find creative ways to get these students to talk, it kind of killed me inside. I, I really, I hate, of like the two or three core messages this movie is trying to get across, that one is so beyond fucked that I I I it's I gotta I'm gonna I'm gonna be really I'm gonna be honest with you, man. This is creeping up there with the Quiet Man. It's creeping up there with Elephant. This movie because I disagree with it so fundamentally that I it's hard to appreciate anything else happening in the movie. 
Well, that is that is quite the take. I I have to say that I definitely didn't have quite that much of a visceral reaction to it, simply because I I am sort of ignorant to to the world of the deaf. Not not because of my just because I you know I don't I don't really know much about it. There's nobody in my life uh, that is deaf. Uh, Liz can do a little bit of ASL as well, but it's I. I just I just don't know anything about it. So I mean it's really it's really great to hear that take and and hear that it is sort of uh disrespectful towards that culture. Well, and it's it's you know this this automatic assumption that all deaf people can read lips or that all deaf people can can talk to an extent. It's there are there are so many the the array of of cuz there's deaf there's then there's technically I think it's called hard of hearing where it is that you're you are kind of mostly deaf but you can you still can speak and then you know there's a lot of like things that pe- like that people don't often think about if they're not deaf which is you know well can can deaf can like a deaf couple have a child who hears and the answer is yeah that there's there's actually an it's called codas they're called children of deaf adults and that happens often it's also possible for two hearing parents to have a deaf child um and clearly i think there's some examples of that in the movie um but there's just like a lot of a lot of assumptions that are, get get made with it that i don't i don't think that this movie tackles and the approach that it does take just it seems to borderline on offensive um yeah, I know. I could now that you've brought that up, I can totally see how that it would be uh, stressful uh, for somebody to to come at it with with that point of view. I I I would counter that. I do think I do think lip reading would probably be a very helpful skill if you're deaf. I'm not saying that I don't believe that it should be forced on everybody that's deaf. If you don't want to do it, you shouldn't have to do it. But I do think that's that's probably a useful skill. No, I'm. I'm I'm sure it is, but the the problem with lip reading is the assumption that deaf people can hear at all. Like, obviously, if you're deaf, you're gonna you're gonna learn you're gonna learn your language different, right? And and just like you know, I feel like I'm doing like like communication 101, but just like how much of how much of communication is a the the tone and the expression that we use as we're saying what we're saying. Um, it's also, it's also in the body language. And so with, with signing, you know, it's signing is so expressive. It's so, um, I do think that Marley Matlin is a, is a little, um, performing a little bit with her sign in the movie. But if you, and thankfully I love, uh, where I, where my job is in Seattle, there's a building right across from this coffee shop, right across from where I work. And it's, I think it's a building for, uh, for deaf people. And there are deaf people all the time in the coffee shop. And like, it's just, you know, to, to you know, you know how you get when you get really excited and like, you want to say something and you can barely get the words out. And sometimes you like fumble over the same thing happens with people who sign, right? Like you can get so excited that it happens so fast. And like, I, I by no means can read sign language very well anymore. Cause I just, I haven't practiced it in like 15 years, but I can usually pick up a sign or two. But when you see people, when you see two deaf people having a conversation, it does feel like what James experiences when he goes to that deaf dinner party. Um, now he probably is getting, he's probably getting a little more than we would with very limited knowledge, but still, yeah, it's very much, wow. I didn't, I didn't get any of that. Um, well, I'm glad you brought up, body language i think that's that's a really important thing and even even if she is overdoing it slightly i don't think we can can chastise her too much for that because I mean, it is her first film oh yeah uh, for sure but uh the body language thing is very important and and i'm going to probably circle back to the ebert thing a couple times about the film cheating um i i really dislike the decision to have him narrate all of the signs i think either Either leave some of the more emotional ones uh, untranslated, because even even the book calls out that we don't need his narration, because a lot of it we can just pick up via body language and her emotions or the other kids' emotions. Um, but I also think that, that subtitling in certain places may have been a better choice than having him narrate it because we're so much of this film and I get that yes he is the main character but it's all through his 
point of view, and I think that's a little unfair to, again, the world of the deaf, and that we, we get cheated out of a lot of their experience. Well, and, and just, you know, the idea that, you know, and there are, you know, like when I was in high school, my teacher for ASL wasn't deaf. So clearly there are a lot of people in the deaf community who aren't, who are not deaf. Um, and you see it all the time in like, like, you know, in, in the quarantine time that we're living in almost every time that you see a press conference with somebody else, whether it's here uh, in Washington with governor Inslee or, or somewhere else with other governors of other States, you know, five feet from, away from them is somebody doing sign. Right. But that's a hearing person relaying what he's saying. So it's not, I, I, I have no problem with this even being his story. I, I, that, like, the fact that it's a hearing man who is the lead of the movie ultimately doesn't, doesn't bug me. That's just, that's this story and it's the way they chose to, to tell it. Um, but I absolutely agree that in those moments when she's expressing her frustration or, you know, reliving the trauma of what it was to be a teenager and being deaf, um, or what, when she finally, right before she finally explodes at him at the end, yeah, it's his his narration is in a way it's taking away her performance because we're 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 getting we're getting his um what's the word I'm looking for um not interpretation well yeah that, yeah we're getting his interpretation of what she's signing um and it's yeah it it takes away from the work that she's doing. Oh, absolutely. That's it. Does uh, I think a great disservice to not only to her, but uh, to a certain extent the kids as well. Yeah, uh, y- y- yeah. I I, I, I got to say, I to to swing it positive for a moment. I I, I loved everything that you brought to the table about uh, the world of the deaf and deaf culture. I'm I'm really glad that at least one of us had a little bit of experience with that to to bring to the table. That was actually really enlightening. Um, but I. Like I said, to swing it positive, I love the kids in this movie. All of them. I think they're all doing great work. Considering that a, a, a few of them, at least, weren't actors. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, it's funny because I can see how this movie, in a way, it it it, it leads... It, it, it ticks so many of those film boxes, right? There's the really... There's the uplifting moment where, you know, the... The his class does that performance, and oh, we, you know they're they're doing the thing, and they've kind of they've connected as a group, and they're doing the b- boomerang song, and then later there's the scene where they're on the train, they're, or not, they're not on the train, but they're pretending to be a train, and like he asks them favorite favorite football player, or favorite book, or whatever, and and that's all great too, and I I get that he is trying to forge a bond with his students. And, and again, it's like I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's great. I think that's that's the kind of teacher teacher student relationship that you know it should be really investing in their future. It's just it's 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 his views it's his version of what their future should be that I I take issue with and the the fact that it's so heavily relied on that you have to speak. No, you you, you don't if you're deaf. I mean, people have have done it for decades for for hundreds of years they've gone by with their own language and they've adapted as necessary and they will continue to do so it's to say that you have to speak is is just it's well it's just inaccurate it ultimately at the end it's it's inaccurate <laughs> well it is yeah absolutely there is a sort of cynical point of view about it if we can stay on the performance scene for a minute though i am i really think that's one of the best scenes in the movie, because I think I was I was sort of pleasantly surprised, even though I I do agree with you, I I do appreciate this idea that oh he did he he helped them to learn how to sing, which I think is a really it's a great way, of uh, uh, it, it can be a very beautiful way of expressing yourself. So I I did appreciate that aspect of it, but I I love the juxtaposition of cutting back and forth to to Marley Matlin watching this, and there's a I think this is, for me, one of the scenes where she definitely earned her Oscar, is there's sort of a wave of emotions that go over her face, and I, I don't... I, maybe I'm misinterpreting some of them, but I love that maybe there is a, a slight pang of jealousy about it, but there's also uh, 
I guess, a sort of disappointment. And I, I saw some things in her face that made me think like, oh, she's, she thinks that he's exploited them. Especially when you also get the cross-cutting with some of the more condescending parents, which kind yeah. of back that up for me. Oh, oh, totally. Yeah, and and I do think it's... I, I think there might be a tinge of jealousy, yeah, but I think it's more just a betrayal, you know? I mean, they. I think at that point they've had the thing where he's he's promised to never ask her to, to speak again. Um, and so while he hasn't broken that promise yet, because he does break it, there's something about seeing him do it with with the students to like and the the whole presentation is about how they can not just speak but sing to this song and you, I'm, I'm sure that there's a sense of betrayal to that like yeah you promised me that you wouldn't ask me to speak again but you know in a way she's made her her stance on the deaf speaking very clear and this is flying in the face of everything that we've at least a assumed and gathered on our own as an audience about the way that she feels about deaf people and speaking. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do, I do want to stay with exploitation for a minute, seeing as though all the, all the points that you brought up, I, I was going to talk about the one kid, I think his name is, is William, uh, the one that's, he only has a couple of scenes and all of them, his swearing gets better in them. So they start yeah. with the basketball scene and he's trying to call the William Hurt character an asshole because he feels like he's been incorrectly fouled. And then it later changes to there's a moment where he actually says shit. And then later in the final scene where where him and William Hurt at the, the dance, which we do have to talk about that dance. Um, he, he says so long fuckface after William Hurt tells him that... Um, you know, language is a dangerous thing and you've got to use common sense. Um, I, I was going to say that I, I feel like that's really the only moment that's, or those are the only moments that are played for laughs. And I do like the building towards him calling him fuckface and enunciating it almost perfectly. But your, your stance on how fundamentally wrong it is, has kind of made me change my mind, I think a little bit. You know, it just depends on how you're watching the movie at that point. I mean, William Hurt has been has been put into a position in the movie where he is playing the the savior, the hero throughout the movie. He is there to fix problems, and so if you're following that and and buying it throughout the entire movie, then you're probably hook, line, and sinker in that. And and again, and I I I should also make it very clear too that I'm not against the deaf speaking. If that's their choice, if that's something that over time they've decided to do. Right. And so there's also I've also got to accept that maybe there are people in the movie. Right. The, the students at the school who who want that as a tool, as a resource, as something in their lives. And so I don't think we have to take away from that the, the building of the fuck face moment, because I do think it's kind of funny. And and I think they've in a way they've kind of earned it. Um. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's manipulative. I said that word very weird. It's manipulative. There we go. No, um, but that's, but that's, that's probably correct. I think that's, I think that's a word that I was striving for that you beat me to. My, my favorite thing about the building to the fuck face is that uh, uh, a few notes back before that, when he's, he's at the dinner party and he's like making a face, like he, he's sitting there all like. Like being such a petulant little fuck at that deaf dinner party that at one point I go, what a pompous fuck face. And then when he gets called it later, it was extra funny for me because I was like, yes, he is a fuck face, oh, isn't I he? I got it. Yeah, I, I do. The, the more this movie sits with me, the more I really hate that it's all from his point of view, even to the point where during the poker scene, they're all congratulating him yeah. for the work the quote-unquote work that he's done with Sarah. Just, that just... That was really where the movie started to pull me out and rub me the wrong way, and I, I started to maybe subconsciously feel some of the things that you were talking about. I was like, there's something about this that feels wrong. Well, and I... I, I, I wonder if... If part of the purpose of the movie is for, uh, is for us to, is to kind of sit back and go, what he's doing is wrong. 
if we're supposed to, you know, watch that poker scene and go, we're seeing him get the congratulations when really Marley Matlin took it upon herself to learn how to play poker and shuffle and all those things. Which, by the way, the fact that she can shuffle is like is like some kind of fucking feat of nature. Like she's deaf. She still has her fucking hands, which she uses primarily for language all the time. We're so surprised that she can shuffle. The way they like ooed and awed at her shuffling was like this whole group of people are fuck faces. It was a fuck face convention. Yeah, there's there's just too way too many contradictions. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm looking through my notes here and um you know Piper Laurie is in this movie n- not very much and she she got an Oscar nomination. I I really really liked that first scene between Piper and and Marley Matlin when she comes back. Um I thought oh, when they was... talk about her her dad leaving and yes. and how much the boys liked her and things like that, that stuff really is some it is it's some of the best stuff in the movie. I you know and and you can tell that there's a, a I, it's so funny it's the first it's the first time we've seen these two together and yet we get that it's a rough history. It it felt really genuine. Um, I love and I love that you can tell that in in the storytelling that Piper Laurie as the mom is has really only just started to attempt to learn sign language. Her her signs are really slow and very, very like deliberate. Um, it, and it's, there's a sense. And even in just seeing that there is this sense of her, you know, making the attempt. Like I, I really fucked up in the past. I did hate you in the past, but I, I'm now trying to work through that. And, and I really, I, in, in a movie that's full of, of, um, like literal camera direction that I'm just not a big fan of in terms of scenes. That one st- stands out to me. I I really liked what was going on in that moment. I I agree, and I, I there's some some writing. There's some great subtext in the film. There there's so many nuances that I love. I, especially that scene. You like you said with the mother, we get the feeling that she's kind of new at it. She knows she's lost her daughter, so now she's going to try and make the effort to learn the sign language so that she can communicate with her. There's all the stuff where uh, Marley Matlin. I mean, she does come out and say it at one point and and talks to William Hurt about how she used sex as a way to communicate uh, and how she, it's something. I love the line that it was something that I could do just as well as as the hearing girls. Um, unfortunately, I think. A lot of that was informed by the fact that Marley Matlin was actually abused as a child and then, you know, both as as quite a young girl by her babysitter and then again in high school by a teacher, which is an unfortunate thing to have to mine for your acting. Um, but it's yeah, that's that's in a in a film that, as you as you say, and I'm going to piggyback on the idea now of being fundamentally wrong, there is some some really great nuanced writing is when it comes to the subtext of these characters. Uh, Sure. I mean, and I think, I I don't think any of that really went to William Hurt, but I think the way that, that Matlin plays with the scenes of, of, you know, watching him, there's the, um, like I just, the way that she responds to him making a joke of everything, which as, as the character he does, I really like that she she relentlessly doesn't let him off the hook with that. And just watching her kind of her the way that she signs, she even signs different when when he's got that joking tone going on. Yeah, she I think she says something along the lines of you can't communicate, you know, when you're when you're amusing yourself. And she <laughs> she calls him on. It's actually one of the the better moments for William Hurt because he does at that point actually realize that oh shit, yeah, I'm kind of doing a disservice to you. The, and the problem is that he, the problem is that he he does notice it and but then doesn't learn from it. And there's a there's exactly a, there, that's the flip side of that comment. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's crazy. Like, and there's I I was you know I'm looking through my notes and and you know I keep coming back to William Hurt because this was like in the William Hurt heyday. This was when he had four leading actor nominations in a row plus the one win for Kiss of the Spider Woman. And this is like he is just making like movie after movie he is knocking him out of the park um so so and and again i'm not mad at necessarily how he's playing the part it's more the character and and the movie itself in terms of how they're exploring that but um what i was getting at is there's a moment at the end where he he comes back to the mom's house and he's he's so desperate to find her and the mom says very simply she doesn't want to see you 
And then his line, and I wrote, I had to write it down because I want to make sure. She says, she doesn't want to see you. And then he says, I know, but I need to see her. To which it's like, so clearly you, you don't know then. You're, it's just like, and then he somehow coerces Piper Laurie to telling him, you know, where she is. But I, this movie is full of him getting away with, with everything. And, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to wrap it up, but there's, there's one moment in particular that is, I mean, maybe it's a good scene and how uncomfortable it is, but when, when they're having sex and he asks her to say his name, I mean, Jesus Christ, that's, that's hard. That's, I, I, there are so many reasons why I don't like that scene. Well, even before that, he says, I can never get close enough. I'm like, oh, I'm really glad she didn't hear that. Cause that's, man, that is super disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, that is just shitty characterization. Like the, the the more we're talking about this, I'm I'm start I'm coming around to your camp. Like man, fuck fuck William Hurt in this movie. Well, and then it's and I, again, no, it's not it's not a bad performance. Sorry, I should say fuck James. Fuck that. Yes, character. yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, how how do you how do you feel about um him going back to the pool? after they've ha- basically after she's left and him sitting there essentially you know, in his own way ex- experiencing the silence i think it's i think it's supposed to be romantic i think that's the vibe that we're going for but honestly it feels a little exploitative it's weird i think i think you know and granted you know we did we didn't write this we didn't direct it we have nothing to do with this movie I feel like that scene in like the courtship of of them would have worked better. Like maybe maybe it's like the first time he's asked her to speak and she's like fuck you. And maybe he can't like he's still trying to figure out, you know, he's never really seen it from that that perspective. Then he goes in and then does it. Like there's a little more like him trying to figure it out that I maybe I would have appreciated. And like especially if if he had done it before that that scene where apparently you don't have to breathe underwater where they start to have sex, which is just kind of comical in, in a in a way that, you know, we need to breathe. Yeah, well it's it's also just not practical. Yeah. Um but it would have made that scene feel a little more like, oh, they're not just they're not just having sex in the pool because that's where she was. They're they're there because now they're now they're as close as they could be, right? Now he's not and and I I, and again, I know that that's what they're trying to get to in that scene, but it doesn't. I mean, for me, I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't bring it out enough because it, 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 we haven't really earned it at that point. I, I think so. I absolutely agree. And I kind of, the scene afterwards really left a bad taste in my mouth where he's he gets caught by the superintendent leaving the building, and then later in the day, the guy has his shoe on his desk that he left behind, which. How do you leave behind just one shoe? I I don't. Well, and like he's running away like a like a skittish teenager. It's I mean, maybe if I mean, do you think it would he would have drawn as much attention if he was just walking to his fucking truck? Yeah, exactly. Like you're you know? you're you're calling attention to the fact that you've done something <laughs> wrong. And and the other thing, the other reason why I hate James, and, and we should probably make that, we've been doing a good job recently of making that distinction clear, not William Hurt, but one of the other reasons why I don't like James is this idea that he's he's Mr. Fix-It, right? You know, we just screw your job. I got mine. You can just quit because you don't need it because I'm going to take care of you because I'm a man. It's like, yeah, it's that, it's that male white savior complex, <laughs> which is so predominant in this film. It's like, it's just so, uh, fucking, I, I just, uh, yeah, man, man, you're really, you're really doing a good job swaying me. Cause I, I came into this episode not liking a lot about the movie, but I'm, I'm starting to even appreciate less some of the things that I, that I did appreciate. like the, I was going to bring up, I do, I do love the choice to not use a ton of music in the film, especially in the dialogue scenes. I think that's a good choice to let the, those scenes play as they need to. Um, 
especially in, and we we really have to talk about the scene where she does speak. Yes. Uh, how much did that just cut through you and destroy you? Because that just uh, that just hurt my heart. You know, and I've having read the play, I, I knew I knew that that scene was coming, um, and I. I'm trying to find the best way to word this. I think in the hands of a different director, I think that moment would have hit harder. Um, because I, one of the things I came to the conclusion to, to at the end of this movie was that Rhonda Haynes direction of this film there, there really is not a clear point of view um, because trying to handle William Hurt's character and Marley Matlin's character. I think it, it plays too much in the William Hurt that when, when Marley Matlin is kind of given her, her, her time to shine, it's, it doesn't feel as adequate. And I just, I, I, I mean, it is really, it it's, it's so raw and emotional and, 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 and it's what, you know, there's, a part of again of, of of this deaf culture is is there can be and I want to there can be an embarrassment of how your voice sounds because you, you know the deaf hear words differently that that's part of it so they they don't have speaking problems they just hear the the language differently they hear the words differently and so if you don't like the way that you sound or if you've been made fun of as in your past because of how you sound yeah, it can be a huge obstacle to overcome or, or it's something that you never overcome at all. And I, you know, it is an emotional moment. And I think, you know, throughout the film, Marley Matlin does a great job. And I think she does there too. I just, I wish it, it had hit me harder. And I don't think it has anything to do with her performance. I think the way in which this film was shot and put together, I think it left a lot to be desired. No, I can I can definitely see that point of view. I I was going to bring up the the cinematography and the direction of this film. There's really just nothing special about it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a pretty ordinary looking film. I mean, not not to say that every film has to be stylized. You can just let the story tell itself. But it's there's no there's nothing unique about the the way that it's look that it looks or is shot or is directed. Yeah, there's a moment where it's after after she's left, and we get a we get and it's there's no other, there's a very stereotypical shot of James looking out over the ocean, and it's like this isn't original. We I get what you're trying to do, and yet it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me because I don't feel bad for this guy, and so watching him pine by looking out over the water is like. You're you're really trying hard to force me to feel something that is contradictory to everything I felt about this character throughout the entire movie. So, not going to work for me. And this is this is a great moment to uh, to loop back to last week's episode. The the Gleaners and I and uh, the the Varda film is that so many reviewers and even the book itself called out the film's inadequacies. You know, it's it being unfocused and such, and it's. It's no different with this film, even in the book and a couple other uh, pieces that I read online. They call out the very TV movie of the week feel that runs through the whole thing. But that's, I guess, not enough to discredit it from being a must-see movie. I, d I don't get the I don't get the contradiction there, maybe. Well, and I, I wonder if and maybe maybe this is a weird comparison to make. So if this sounds way off the rails, just stop me and I will. But I wonder if, in a way, this is like, and I like this movie I'm about to reference, but I wonder if this is like Crash, right? Like, Crash was the movie about race, and this is the movie about deaf culture. You know, it's got a, it's got a mainstream actor. Um, it, it, it got enough good reviews, um, and, and it, it, that was enough to sort of carry it, carry it through to, a, to award season. Um, because... Because ultimately, it, it is trying to it's trying to say a big thing. It's trying to take a big topic like deaf culture and give give a, a, a nice um, kind of put put a romance on top of it. And boom, there you go. There's you got a romantic deaf story. There you go. Um, yeah, it all it all seems just a little too easy. 
You know what I mean? Especially that ending. I feel so, and again, I'll use this word again that Ebert used, I just feel cheated by the end. Yeah. Nobody's, what has anybody learned? And, uh, and, and do they deserve the outcome that they get? It's particularly, particularly James. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where I, I wrote my very last note was, and they lived happily ever after dot, dot, dot until she realizes that his job is to continue forcing deaf children to speak. And then like, so either, either he, either he's going to, you know, in the story after the movie, either, either he quits his job and he acquiesces more to her. She starts speaking and she acquiesces more to him or two weeks later, they're fucking apart again because it's like, because if, 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 if nobody learns something or nobody is going to, going to kind of find that middle ground, then I don't, then what happens? Like, yeah, the end, the end. Oh God. Yeah. The easy. That's a great, the ending came way too easy. Oh no, I can, I can hear it in your voice. It's, it's a frustrating experience to be sure. (laughs) But I do, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do really want to come out of this going. I, I 100% agree that, that Marley Matlin deserved her Oscar and she was nominated against some really tough competition. Now I haven't seen any of these other films except for one of them, but she was nominated against Sigourney Weaver for Aliens Jane Fonda for The Morning After, Sissy Spacek for Crimes of the Heart, and Kathleen Turner for Peggy Sue Got Married. I mean, that is that is a stacked year as far as as female performers go. They are all at the very top of their game. Oh, big time, big time. And you know, Crimes of the Heart is another. Crimes of the Heart is a play. Um, another very actually, Children of a Lesser God. I can't say was a successful play. Um, it did it did pretty well, but Crimes of the Heart is an all timer. I mean that that is a play that people still do a lot, um, and of course, I, I mean, come on, Sigourney Weaver getting nominated for Aliens is just still one of the coolest, craziest nominations ever. Oh, I I love it. I mean, I'm glad it went Matlin's way, but again, whenever we can, whenever we can make history, and we made history twice that year with one a nomination for a big epic sci-fi action film, and then two for actually giving it to Matlin and still being the only deaf person to to receive that honor yeah yeah so is it uh is it question time I I mean I I was I don't I don't want to spend too much time on 80s aesthetic because I mean this is a film that is a victim of the time and it's not going to help uh it's not going to help that that ongoing argument that we have about the 80s being the worst (laughs) decade for film so I I don't I don't think bring it up I know. I don't think we need to belabor the point on that. So, I mean, unless you've got anything you want to add, I think it's question time. I, no, I, th- I think it's question time. Ian, do you think that Children of a Lesser God should be in the book? Now, I will say that I don't regret seeing this film. I mean, sure. I'm, happy that I, I am happy that I saw it the once. That's great. Now I know what it is. I also, I love the title. We didn't even talk about that. I think the title I know. is, is fantastic. A great title. I know. And it's, unfortunately, it's kind of wasted on this film. But I yeah. am going to have to go, no, this does not belong in the book. Now, do you, do you have a replacement? Oh, man, I have, I have so many replacements. Okay. Um, I mean, I could, again, like the Varda documentary, I could hit a stone and uh, throw a stone and hit 10 movies that are more deserving. Now, you know my love of Witness, and this film actually shares a cinematographer with Witness. I mean, that's, again, another film about sort of uh, forbidden love, and I think it's one of Harrison Ford's best performances. Isn't Witness in the book? I No, it's not. Damn, okay. All right. But I, I was also thinking about relationships with teachers. I was thinking about Mel Gibson's first movie as a director, The Man Without a Face, and how much I, I really love that film. Um, but, you know, the I did look at, at how many films from 1986 are are in the book, and there's quite a few. There's 19 films from 86. Wow. Which is, is quite heavy representation. Um, so I, I think my replacement would be Witness, but as far as that year goes, there's also quite a few films that don't have representation that I love. And I'm, I've got a split decision here. I'm either going to go Witness from 85 or Mona Lisa from 86. Well, I don't know that I can weigh in because I haven't seen either of those. 
Yeah, and and Mona Lisa, as I've talked, because I've talked about that film in Bob Hoskins, I believe I used Mona Lisa as a recommend at the top of Crying Game. Yes, you uh, did. But that that's a film that's also about uh, a sort of strange love story between the 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 guy that's just gotten out of prison and is is driving for a prostitute and he falls in love with her and it's a story about unre- sort of his unrequited love towards her and and her using him. So, either one of those I think would be fine replacements. Great, yeah. Um, but uh, if you couldn't tell, it's definitely a no uh, for me. Um, and you know, I—it's so funny that I—I I, I never even thought about replacing it with a with a a, a romance. Um, you know, because that's kind of what the movie's driving to. And I uh, immediately went to um, a movie I saw in my ASL class called *Sound and Fury*, and it's uh, it's a documentary about a couple of deaf families. And uh, it's their struggle with whether or not to have their their kids get it's, uh, the cochlear implant, which is something that it's a device that gets surgically implanted um, on the side of your head that can enhance how much you can you can hear. And, uh, uh, you know, again, sort of uh, stereotypically, the thought the thought is that it would it'll make life easier because you'll be able to hear more. Now, obviously there are complications with getting the cochlear implant. And then there's the whole there's deaf culture and deaf community and what that would mean. Uh, in terms of, in a way, if of your status in that world, um, I don't. I've, here's the thing: I've only seen it the one time. Everything I've just said to you is what I can remember from seeing it when I was 15, which actually is should tell you a lot about it because it, it actually is something that stuck with me. It's a very impassioned film. The there's the father of one of these kids is he is so against the idea of a cochlear implant because because deaf culture is his culture and he it seems like foreign and obscene to even think about it um i looked it up it is a hard movie to find i think itunes is the only place where you can rent it right now um oh wow but it it, it really did and it was up for an oscar that year i actually think um i didn't mention it 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 was nominated the same year that the Gleaners and I came out and it lost to that other, whatever we mentioned last week. So it was, it was up for an Oscar. Um, and I think it's more, it's definitely more important than this movie. And I think the point that it's trying to make about how complicated deaf culture is, it, that is the focus of the story. We don't get, we don't get thrown into the, uh, 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 you know, depending on how you think about it, a good or a bad romance, um, there's nothing at it's it's these real families dealing with a real issue and i actually think it, it is something that people should see because it it is very educational it, it really brings a lot of things to light that you would just never have thought of if you're not deaf so sound and fury is my record or is my replacement oh that's great i've definitely got to try and seek that out and maybe rent that on itunes that sounds fabulous but uh well there you have it those that's definitely two notes from us um but doesn't matter what we think, because we also want to know what you think. Have you seen Children of a Lesser God, and do you think it should be in the book? So, please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you think. You can support the show at patreon.com slash 1001 by one. You can find us on Stitcher and Spotify and Google Play and Apple Podcasts and all those wonderful places. And next week, we haven't talked about this director in 80 episodes. It's a movie that we haven't seen yet. But I got to tell you, after the run that we've had, I have not looked forward to a movie more. I'm very, very excited about delving back into this particular filmmaker again. Ian, I know I know that you are excited as well. Oh, I can't wait. This has been sitting on my shelf for a, for a few months, and I've been waiting for the opportunity to talk about it. Yes, indeed. So please stick around next week for this mysterious film. But until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week.